This episode contains coarse language, stories of drug abuse, sexual situations, occult themes, and described acts of violence. Discretion is advised. Diversion Podcasts This is Backstage, The Devil in Metal. Unheard stories of sex, drugs, and rock and roll from the legends of metal music. Black Sabbath, Metallica, Judas Priest, and dozens more. In this episode... That was the minute I think I knew that the audience wanted a villain because they invented it right there. I lit his beard and went straight up his face. It was just God, a stupid thing to do. I have never seen demon eyes quite like that in my entire life. When me and Ozzy threw the fucking TV out the fucking window, I remember in our Prague, they said they couldn't use the room for a month. I bought like 2,000 rounds of ammunition. Me and Dom had these guns and we were shooting anything that had glass. We destroyed about $30,000 worth of fucking shit in this hotel room. We're flying over trees and this is the last moment of my life. So I looked at our driver, he looked at me, I said goodbye to him. I looked to the back of the bus. We were all, this is it. I guess it's been a good run up until now. An established musician once told me that being in a touring metal band is like being in an ever-expanding time warp. One day, you leave your friends and family at home, board a van, or, if you're lucky, an RV or bus, and start driving to the first of dozens of cities and countries. If all goes well, you take a short break to briefly decompress. Then you get back into the vehicle and do it all over again. And again. And again. Of course, there are exciting experiences along the way. Endorphin-pumped shows, road shenanigans, hopefully great camaraderie with fans and bandmates, But when it's all over and you get back home for an extended period of time, it seems like things have changed. When you reconnect with your friends, you realize that you've missed the last 18 months or so of their lives. Birthdays, weddings, and other significant events have passed you by. A week later, you're so glad to be back home. And at the same time, you can't wait to get back on the road. That's normal for a successful band which is why so many songs are written about being on the road and away from home. It's also why so many musicians fill so many of the hurry-up-and-wait hours with drinking, drugging, and demolition. We'll get into all that soon. But first, I want to discuss the occasionally ugly side of traveling in the dead of night for long periods of time, and the horrible things that can happen when you're living in a microcosm of outrageousness, chaos, and sometimes tragedy. As the clock ticked towards noon in a sleepy town near Bath, England, on August 15, 2012, Savannah, Georgia-based Baroness were driving from Bristol, England, where they played the night before, to a show in Southampton when an unimaginable tragedy occurred. Most of the band members were asleep when frontman John Baisley, who was awake, suddenly realized the band's outdated 1983 bus was no longer on the highway. It was navigating narrow streets in a small town. The driver seemed lost. After making a seemingly random left turn in search of a larger road, 
The bus was at the top of a tall hill, and Baisley noticed a sign that read, Next two miles, 12% downgrade. He was surprised to see that, since in America, commercial vehicles aren't allowed on any roads that have more than an 8% gradient. The bus started down the steep road. There was nowhere to turn the vehicle since there was a stone wall on one side of the road and a downward hill on the other. Realizing they were in jeopardy, the driver stepped hard on the brakes. The expected screeching sound was accompanied by a grinding and deep groaning noise from the innards of the bus. Then the brakes failed. The bus was speeding down the hill and sharply turning the wheel would have guaranteed the vehicle would flip, slide, and maybe roll. The emergency brakes were as useless as a twig would have been trying to stop a revving chainsaw. So the driver kept the bus going, hoping there was some way he could stop the vehicle at the bottom of the hill without getting into a fatal collision. Moments later, everyone knew impact was imminent. Baisley recalls every moment of the mayhem that ensued. All the systems on the bus that would allow us the control that we needed to to not crash were just gone. They were out the window. So this, it took about 30 seconds for me to realize that. And then there's there just happened to be about another minute and a half of time where I'm just thinking about what, what should be done. Then I think about a minute, 45 seconds before, before the actual crash, that really disturbing, magical thing happened where time stopped. And each moment, each second felt like a, like a full minute. And I had no idea what to do. You know, nobody had any clue what we're supposed to be doing. And at the end, of, you know, at the bottom of the road, there's, you know, there's a T, vaguely T-shaped intersection with a light and a very busy intersection, which we luckily didn't, you know, wasn't filled with cars and a stoplight, uh, which was red. Uh, we went through the red light at about 60, 70 miles an hour, probably, uh, through a guard, you know, one of those guardrails, like it was made out of, you know, warm butter. And very immediately, we are, we've got, you know, four wheels of a full-size motor coach in the air. And I am watching from about midway, you know, just, just in front of the halfway point of the bus. I'm standing in the middle of the aisle, seeing the tops of spruce trees like the little teeny wispy tops with the top of the with the the halfway point up our, our windshield like we're over we're, we're flying over trees and this is the last moment of my life hi and welcome to backstage the devil in metal the podcast that explores the lifestyle, culture, and craziness of metal from a variety of angles to tell you the stories behind the stories. I'm your host, author and journalist John Wiederhorn, and in this episode, we'll take a deep dive into mayhem. No, not the Norwegian black metal band whose vocalist blew his head off and whose guitarist was murdered by a church-burning member of a rival group. I'm talking about the mayhem, both planned and unplanned, sometimes hysterical, occasionally horrifying, that often goes along with being a successful touring band on the road for extended periods of time. 
We'll explore wild pranks, destructive binges, violent outbursts, and near-death experiences that have accompanied metal since before anyone knew what to call it. So fasten your seatbelts, check your blood pressure, and let's dive in. It would be absurd to claim hard rock and metal bands like Led Zeppelin, Black Sabbath, and Judas Priest trademarked rock and roll mayhem, though they all placed their stamp on it and set the bar for dozens of imitators. One of the most memorable acts of early rock mayhem involved Alice Cooper and took place at the Toronto Rock and Roll Festival in 1969 and included An Ill-Fated Bird, a good 11 years before Ozzy Osbourne bit the head off of a dove at a label signing event. Though both were acts of, dare we say, foul play. In Alice's case, someone threw a chicken on stage during the show. There's circumstantial evidence to suggest it was Alice's manager, Shep Gordon, though Alice won't confirm. In any case, Cooper picked up the bird and tossed it into the crowd. It was an innocent move, but one that didn't work out so well for the chicken. And for years after, stories circulated about how Alice ripped the chicken to bits, then flung the pieces at the fans. Here's Alice to set the record straight. After the chicken thing happened, which which I never did kill the chicken, the audience did. I mean, I, I there I am with feathers on stage. The doors are on one side of the stage and John and Yoko are on the other. And there's this feather. We, we opened up two pillowcases full of white feathers and I hit it with a CO2 cartridge and it looked like a blizzard up there and the music is a white noise at that point and here's Alice in the middle of it and I look down and there's a chicken and I didn't bring the chicken that wasn't part of the show somebody brought it and threw it on stage not being from a farm it had wings it had feathers it should fly so I picked it up and kind of chucked it in the audience well the audience tore it to pieces and threw the pieces back on stage. The next day in the paper, Alice Cooper kills chicken and da-da-da-da. That was the minute I think I knew that the audience wanted a villain because they invented it right there. I never killed the chicken. The audience did. In fact, the first three or four rows were all in wheelchairs. They're the ones that killed the chicken, which it makes it even more bizarre, isn't it? They say the first casualty of war is truth. Where there's mayhem, there's frequently creative reinvention, supposition, and even downright delusion. In the case of Alice, the chicken incident only happened once. Alice is fond of animals and wasn't about to make a chicken sacrifice a regular part of his show. And yet, in the minds of fans who saw him or thought they saw him in the 70s, the incident was a routine highlight of the concert, along with the hanging and simulated decapitation of Alice. I have had hundreds upon hundreds of people tell me how they saw me do the chicken in uh, Oshkosh and they saw me do the chicken in Florida. I never did the chicken except one time and it was an accident. But people will swear that they saw me do the chicken 10 years later or that the snake bit me. I, I've seen reviews where the guy would review the show and four things that he mentioned never happened in the show because he kind of imagined them happening. And when he started doing the review, he went, oh, well, that must have happened. And and this, well, I think that happened. And honestly, it's amazing, the game of telephone, you know, we have 10 people starting one line and by the end of the line, 
this was pre-internet. So everything about Alice Cooper at that point was all hearsay. By the time I got to school the next day, you know, it was like the the snake was 25 feet long and it bit a girl and dragged her into the backstage. We don't know if she's okay. None of that happened. (laughs) But, I mean, we gave them enough stuff, enough nightmare fodder, you know, to let them create all that stuff. But there was enough stuff in the show that they they could have talked about that was pretty interesting stuff. But then they invented all their own stuff, uh, which which I kind of said that's kind of artistic to let the audience, you know, sort of absorb this whole show and then let them invent their own <laughs> version of it. Ozzy Osbourne can relate to Alice's experiences with fans that ate up the rumors and thrived on the misconceptions. Ozzy was a crazy rock star, no question about that. His exploits are legendary, so we won't go into those. But he insists he's not responsible for most of the destructive and violent antics of which he's accused. The teacher at her school, or someone of the teachers, said he went to one of my concerts. Now, I either they give him LSD at the fucking box office, or so I don't know. But he said, I went to one of your dad's concerts, and this is a teacher at the school. Mm-hmm. And he wouldn't perform until everyone in the audience spat in a bowl and I had to drink all their spit. Now that is fucking outrageous. Yeah. But, but, but my, my daughter came out and said, this is an old nuts at my school. Sometimes mayhem starts from rumors. Just as often, the craziness can stem from practical jokes. There's a long-held tradition in rock and roll that on the last night of a tour, the headliners play pranks on the opening band. Sometimes they're funny and harmless. In 1990 in Miami, on the final day of the Clash of the Titans tour, Anthrax instructed guys from their crew to go to a seafood market and buy the biggest fish they could find. Then they gave the 200-pound monstrosity to their lighting team and asked them to attach it to the top of the truss with long wires and then slowly lower it during Slayer's signature song, Angel of Death. Right when vocalist Tom Araya hit the most dramatic scream of the song, the giant fish hung directly in front of his mic stand, and everyone in Slayer, who have a reputation for never breaking character and smiling on stage, burst into laughter. Other pranks are messier or more distracting. The late Quiet Riot drummer Frankie Benali told me in late 2018 about two of his favorite antics, both of which were simple but effective. Benali pulled off the first on the last show of a tour in 1983, in which Quiet Riot opened for Iron Maiden, and it was sort of an act of revenge on drummer Nico McBrain, who had targeted Benali during the Quiet Riot set. Nico came over and silly stringed me to, to the point that I looked like I was in uh, Funkadelic. I had so much different silly string in my hair, which of course I couldn't get out of my hair. So uh, after we finished playing, I went into the dressing room and I took a shower and I changed. And then I went and uh, uh, acquired uh, two dozen raw eggs and I just sat behind Nico and every time his uh, hand hit the snare drum, I popped a raw egg on his head. Benali's second favorite prank was targeted at Wasp's frontman, Blackie Lawless, when the band was opening for Quiet Riot. One of Lawless's trademark moves was to drink fake blood out of a fake skull that dribbled all over his face. This one night I decided to, to uh, exchange the, the fake blood with hot sauce. 
I have never seen demon eyes quite like that in my entire life. <laughs> the nasty trick triggered an ugly retaliation. While we were playing, uh, he had the road crew go out and get about 20 uh, chicken carcasses, which they kept tossing at me as I was playing. So there were more chickens on, on the drum riser than drums at one point. Metal bands don't always save their pranks for the stage. Black Sabbath's Tony Iommi was legendary for messing with his bandmates and others. One of his favorite stunts was to light drummer Bill Ward on fire in front of shocked onlookers. As he explains... I'd tip him with the studio rubbing alcohol and light him. Of course, it used to burn off. But we had we'd done these party booths beforehand a few times. We were in a restaurant one, one night and uh, in a bar, and... The waiter come by and I said, excuse me, have you got a light? Said, oh, yes, sir. And I got his light. Bill had got a big beard at that time. And I, I lit his beard and he went straight up his face. But Bill breathed in him. Mm, 1948. You know, all the smoke. And, and, and the guy went, wow, man, that freaked me out. So it sort of started at that. And it just got worse as it went on, you know. When Black Sabbath were recording Heaven and Hell with new vocalist Ronnie James Dio, they were drinking and partying a lot and messing around as usual. One day, Iomi decided to show producer Martin Birch the parlor trick he and Bill were so fond of. Only this time, the stunt didn't go off as planned, hence the mayhem. I actually tipped up a completely big full bottle over him and it all soaked into his clothes and I lit him and he just went woof, up like a bomb. What we were doing, we were, we were sort of showing that we had the producer in the, in the studio and Bill walked in and I said, oh, Bill, can I set you on fire? And he said, oh, not just yet, I'm a bit busy. I went, okay. And he came back, he was fiddling around, he came, came over to me about two hours later, said, I'm going home now, so do you want to set me on fire or what? This is in front of Martin Birch, the producer. And Martin had never seen this, so I said, yeah, I'll set you on fire. So I, I, I doused him in this bloody alcohol and lit him and he just bloody hell he went up like a bang you know and went down on the floor all his beard top everything burnt and he's and he's and he had third degree burns all over his legs and oh we had to take him had to send him to hospital it was bloody awful really um he was rolling on the floor screaming and i thought he was laughing and meanwhile i'm still tipping stuff on him it was just god it's a stupid thing to do but and then his mom phoned me up and said you balmy bastard uh, bill might have to have his leg off of course, the irresponsible merriment didn't end there for the post-Ozzy Black Sabbath. Dio left the band after two albums, and the group hired ex-Deep Purple vocalist Ian Gillen for the 1983 album Born Again. Maybe they should have been sobering up and buckling down to retain the career resurgence they had experienced with Dio. But at the time, perhaps their judgment was impaired by fame and substances. Or maybe Tony and Geezer figured they were invincible their antics were as wild as those perpetrated by The Who, The Stones, and Led Zeppelin. And they were having too much fun to know when they had gone too far. And by then, it was too late. We were recording at um, Richard Branson's house, and um, we played so many pranks on each other while we were there, it was not funny in the end. Well, we, what happened, we actually bought four cars for the band just so we could use for the tour, because we were about to get ready for touring. And, and we wanted uh, four cars while we were recording to use and mess around with. We all had a car each, each and then one, one day, 
Ian decides to take a car around the track at, the, at Richard Branson's house. He had a, he had a go-kart track. And he was, of course, Ian had been drinking and drank rather a bit too much and was going around the track and just flipped the car and set it on fire. Uh, but it wasn't his car, it was Bill's car he decided to take out. And uh, he just walked in that house and threw the keys on the table. I don't know how he got out of it, to be honest, because he turned upside down and, and they went on in flames. And one of the songs he wrote was trashed on the album, and it was about this particular thing, about the crash. And uh, so he threw the, threw the keys on the table. Then the next day, when Bill got up, he found out that Ian had done this. So Ian had his boat parked outside on the river, he had this big twin-engine boat, and Bill and a couple of others went in and, and with a chisel and chiseled through the, the bottom of his boat and sank it. So it, it was just getting worse, just getting worse. And of course, Ian got up in the morning and then somebody's nicked me boat, my boat's gone, my boat's gone, not knowing that it's underwater. <laughs> and he had these two massive engines on the back of it. Oh God, and then he's got his guy that worked for him driving up and down the river trying to find if he could see the boat. Of course, he never found it, and then he found out what had happened. Lots of metal bands haven't needed pranks or any other excuses to tear shit up. Once they became popular enough to stay in hotels, lots of groups in the 80s made demolition a part of their nightly routine. They were young, it was fun, and if they needed an excuse, they were going by the rock star playbook, which practically required them to follow in the footsteps of the giants that preceded them to glory. Lots of musicians had a blast until they realized they were the ones who had to pay for the damage they caused. Explains Anthrax guitarist Scott Ian. We did our share of demolishing things, destroying things like idiots, and until you get tired of paying for things. I think the most expensive one was, well, that was way later on, on the Clash of the Titans tour, us and Slayer, we had paintball guns out on that whole tour, and things would tend to get out of control on the days off because we would always stay in the same hotels. I think it was an Indianapolis Hilton. In the middle of the night, we climbed up on this roof area and it was a giant Hilton sign on the top, big white letters, you know, Hilton, fucking giant. And we shot the shit out of that thing to the point where it was, you know, 40 different colors from all the different people. And then, of course, there was a pretty fucking hefty cleaning charge to fix their sign out of somewhere in the $10,000 to $15,000. I think we had to put it. No, paintball done staying home after that. Never threw a TV out of a window. I've thrown a lot of bottles and other random shit. I've thrown, like, garbage bags filled with tomatoes and things off roofs and shit like that. We were standing at this building in New York uh, once. We were writing. I don't even remember what album we were writing. And uh, we would go up to the roof at night. It was, like, 50 stories high. And there was another building lower. Cause you couldn't go shit in the street. You could kill somebody. But there was another roof we would drop shit on in the middle of the night. It was about 30 stories down. So we would go shopping and just buy gallons of milk and everything, just like Letterman does. So, all night, and it would, it, when the shit would hit, it was like a cannon, you know, going off. Until we got busted for that and thrown out of this hotel. But uh, I don't even do any of that. I stopped a long time ago. And it just, what's the point? Exactly. There is no point. That's what mayhem is all about. It's pointless, spontaneous, hazardous, and perhaps the very definition of metal mayhem was tossing that TV out the window, a trick exercised by countless rock and roll bands. In the unreleased 1972 Rolling Stones documentary Cocksucker Blues, Keith Richards and saxophonist Bobby Keys 
were captured tossing a TV off a hotel balcony. And though it wasn't documented, the Who's drummer Keith Moon might have predated Richards in the television-flinging department. He started trashing hotel rooms, lighting fires, and jettisoning furniture out the window as early as 1966. And he was once so desperate to toss a TV that when his car was driving him to the airport, he insisted on turning back. The rest of the band thought he had left drugs in his room. But instead of collecting any substances, he ran back to his room, grabbed the TV, and flung it joyously into the swimming pool. Never mind the Sex Pistols, the Doors, Led Zeppelin, or anyone else, in their heyday, Keith Moon and his bandmates caused the most mayhem in rock and roll. At least, that's what Alice Cooper says, and he didn't even try to compete with them. We could not afford to, to wreck hotel rooms. Honestly, we were the small faces were the kings of wrecking hotel rooms. And it's because I think they had this, you know, uh, this Napoleon complex. They were all, you know, short. They were all small. They were small faces. And so they did big things in hotel rooms. The Led Zeppelin destroyed a lot of hotel rooms. People like that. I I saw Keith Moon do a couple of things that were just absolutely hysterical. We're in a hotel room in New York and we're, you know, like all musicians, somebody says something and he says, oh, that's a great idea for a song. Let's and Keith goes, oh, where's my little tape recorder? He left it in Townsend's room, okay? And he can't wake up Townsend. So he drills a hole in the wall and pretty much takes and carves a hole big enough for him to crawl into the room and get his tape recorder. The, the manager shows up, sees the hole in the wall, and he goes, what happened? And Keith goes, rats. Very large rats. And, you know, finally he tells the guy, says, well, you know, these rooms are $16,000 a piece. And Keith goes, hands him the $16,000 and says, will you help me destroy the rest of the room? And the guy went, yeah, <laughs> they destroyed the room because they already paid for it, you know. And, and Keith thought nothing of throwing an M80 into a, you know, into an elevator with full of people that were he didn't know, you know, and throwing TVs out of windows, you know, and without thinking there might be somebody out there on the street. He was like a little kid that needed a lot of Ritalin. He was the best drummer in rock and roll by far. He was the sweetest person you've ever met. And he was totally uncontrollable. Why spend so much time on a metal podcast talking about the exploits of the Rolling Stones, the Small Faces, and the Who? Well, when it came to mayhem, those guys created the mold. Everyone that followed was standing on the shoulders of giants, including Black Sabbath, who did their fair share of hotel demolition for sure. And years after Ozzy Osbourne went solo, he retained a taste for mayhem and destruction. In the mid-90s, guitarist Zach Wilde was touring Europe with Ozzy when an opportunity arose that was too good to be true. And after getting wasted and smashing up the room, they toasted their predecessors and sent a heavy tube television that had been bolted down to its destructive, and as it turned out expensive, death, 10 floors below. When me and Ozzy threw the fucking TV out the fucking window, I remember in our Prague, 
think we were like on a tenth story. We threw a fucking window out at about like three thirty in the morning. All the members, uh, they said they couldn't use the room for a month. That that was Ozzy's the suite. They were charging a thousand a night. So I think the boss got clipped. They said it, it took us forty one days to fix the room, and I, I'm like, on me and you could have had that fucking room cleaned up in about three hours, right. and had the windows had the windows fixed after me and you visited Home Depot to fix the to get some screws and shit like that. And the TV had the cost about. I mean, it was a tube TV. It wasn't a flat screen TV. It was tubes. And it was bolted to the thing. I ripped it out of the fucking thing and we threw it out the fucking window. But I mean, the whole thing is uh, the explosion it made. All that, you know, all that members Oz, uh, the two of us crying on the ground. And Oz goes, Zach, I've heard a lot of things in my life, but I've never heard anything as great as when that thing hit the fucking ground. <laughs> But I remember mom, Mrs. O, calling Barbara Ann up, my wife, and going, well, the two fucking morons, she goes, the gruesome twosome are at it again. They fucking smashed a fucking hotel room, threw a TV out the window. I thought, that isn't ridiculous. And she goes, well, he's not getting, neither one of them are getting away with it this time. Because they said it almost cost like 40 days for them to fix the room. Right. Fucking joke. Yeah. Which was about four, so it set the old man back about, you know, Oz, it set him back about 41 grand. And it set me back $10,000 for that fucking piece of shit. Uh, Ten grand. i am like, does this thing give you a fucking foot massage? That was the last time I tossed a fucking $10,000 TV out the fucking window. So, I mean, it was just like, oh, that'd be enough of this bullshit. Anyone that has watched any of Pantera's vulgar videos has seen how wild the band members got when they drank too much and had a video recorder in the room, which was pretty much all the time. There are dozens of insane incidents of mayhem they experienced on the road, in the studio, and at home. Here are two of the ones that bassist Rex Brown was most amused and bemused by. When Pantera were in Tokyo in 1997, Brown's tech and another member of the crew went out and bought semi-automatic plastic toy guns that they used to shoot at each other on the bus, the hotel, or the venue preferably when no one was looking, so that there was that element of surprise. And then, whack! Here's Rex to explain what happened next. Well, me and Dom had one, one up, and we went to the department store and got the full loaded, like little Uzis. And these things would shoot like 30 rounds a second. And so I bought like 2,000 rounds of ammunition. <laughs> and this is all on the home video. And... We put, me and Dom had these guns and we were shooting anything that had glass, was uh, fruit, light bulbs. We destroyed about $30,000 worth of fucking shit in this hotel room. And then the next, <laughs> we were going into the, into the knocking on people's, the, the cruise room. You know, this is Japan and a real, real nice Hilton. Mm -hmm. uh, we got banned from all the Hiltons in Japan for the rest of our career. <laughs> Don got away with so much shit, dude. Yeah. And I had to sit there and tell Mr. Udo, because I knew Mr. Udo the best out of all of us, and tell Mr. Udo, sir, it was, it was just a, a prank that went terribly wrong. You know, and Vinny and Philip were so just pissed at me and Don for like the whole rest of the tour. You know, we had to be on our best behavior. And of course, we went back to, to the place and we, we smuggled these things back into the country, you know, put a duct tape them underneath, you know, in our racks and shit like that. 
but it, it, it was some fun shit. Another time life degenerated into madness for Pantera was in Amsterdam in 1992. The band was sitting in a hotel drinking beer and joking around while watching a football game in the common area. The Dallas Cowboys were playing the Buffalo Bills, and everyone in the Texas band was wearing a Cowboys jersey. Sitting nearby was a group of U.S. soldiers that happened to be Bills fans. Then came the mayhem. Rex says it was the biggest fight Pantera were ever involved in, and that's saying a lot. So one thing led to another, and here goes, you know, something flying. And this turns into about 12 of us against 50 fucking Marines. And when those kind of things happen and beer mugs start flying, the smartest thing for you to do is jump underneath the table and then clear the aftermath afterwards. We had one assistant with fucking, it broke in his hand. Uh, we had a photographer, Joe Huron, that was out there. I don't know what he was trying to do, but that wasn't fighting. Um, and our security guard was so fucking big Val, bless his, God bless his soul, um, was at the back and he was so high from, from smoking all that fucking weed in Amsterdam that by the time he got to it, we had pretty much taken, you know, we got our asses handed to us, but we left some damage also. Uh-huh. And of course, they're calling the cops and we had to fucking haul the fuck out of it. <laughs> but that was the biggest brawl we ever got into. I mean, dude, you talk about monks flying, chairs broken overheads. It was fucking insane. I mean, I got hit several times, but, it, you know, we, we just walked out with, you know, bruised noses, a little blood, and, yeah. you know, it, it just normal fucking, but we could, we could carry our own. I'm John Wiederhorn, host of Backstaged, The Devil in Metal. If you're enjoying the show, please make sure to follow, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts. And join us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Backstaged Podcast to discuss the show and all things metal. You can also email your thoughts, comments, and questions to backstaged at diversionpodcasts.com. That's podcasts, plural. Backstaged at DiversionPodcasts.com A far newer band that has frequently courted chaos is Suicide Silence. The Riverside, California-based deathcore group has been in dangerous accidents, unexpected fights, and run-ins with the police. And for a long time, they relished every wild moment. Like the time a party at a friend's house turned into a knife-throwing skirmish. Here's what late vocalist Mitch Lucker said in May 2009 about the band's wildest days. We seem to do lots of fucked up shit. The people are like, dude, that's crazy. What are you guys doing? Like, what are you talking about? We're just hanging out. Like, it's not even that bad. On this tour, some kids like, you You guys go to my house and party. We're like, all right. And it was our, our drum tech, Fupa's birthday. So we had a bottle of Jack, a big bottle of Jack. Mm-hmm. And like 230 cases. And we're like, all right, let's just cruise over there. And the kid's house is kind of trash. He's just like, do whatever, just do whatever you guys want, it's a party. So we just get drunk, and our drum, our drum tech's naked. With two kitchen knives, doing karate in the kitchen, he's a little overweight and just hairy as fuck. So everyone's just like, oh, that's gross. <laughs> then Mark, our guitar player, is to get out of the shower. So he's, his hair is in a towel, his beard's showing, and he's in a towel, and he's just fucking drunk, drinking whiskey. He has a cup like full of whiskey, and then someone Fupa threw like a knife at him. 
we were doing, yeah, <laughs> Fubo was doing ninja shit. Threw a knife at Mark. Mark's like, what the fuck? So Mark has his glass. Mark's like, fuck you. Throws a full glass of whiskey at this uh, uh, and it's like, Psh! and it just turned into a fighting scene from a Japanese movie. Dude, there was knives getting thrown, and there was like chairs getting thrown. Then Mark, you picked up a couch and used it like a fucking like a shield and. Yeah, we ruined this poor kid's house. And then there was a time where Garza was just completely, completely, completely drunk in Europe. Outside the bus, throwing bottles at a wall. It was like right in front of him. And he was naked and barefoot. Just by himself. And then we're like, dude, Garza, what are you doing? He's like, ah, I'm drunk. Then he runs on the bus and he jumps like off the pantry into someone's bunk. And like his feet had like pieces of glass in them and like blood. He's just, we're just like, guys, what the fuck are you doing? Bleeding feet. That was pretty crazy. Mayhem is a fickle beast. Sometimes it's great. Other times it's life-threatening. Sometimes the way it surfaces is natural, unavoidable, and obvious. Other times it comes out of nowhere. And at its worst, mayhem is tragic and deadly. On November 1st, 2012, at 6 a.m., Lucker was still going after rocking all night for Halloween. So he hopped on his new 2013 black Harley Davidson and drove it through the streets. He was in Huntington Beach when he crashed into a light pole, skidded into an oncoming pickup truck, and suffered fatal injuries. He was just 28. Lucker's wife, Jolie, said his death was far from inevitable. Quote, he was an alcoholic and it's been a big battle. I tried to stop him. I was in front of him, begging him not to leave the house, begging him, just seriously for us, don't leave. And he did. And this is what happened. It's a wake-up call. He was an amazing man. He was a wonderful father and a great husband. And now he's gonna miss out on watching our daughter Kennedy grow because he decided to drink and ride. Just don't. Just think before you guys do something stupid. Please learn from this. Please. End quote. The victims of some of the worst tragedies in metal were suffered at the hands of someone else. Legendary Ozzy Osbourne guitarist Randy Rhodes died in 1982 in Leesburg, Virginia, when he decided to take a joyride in a plane, and the pilot crashed while attempting to buzz the band's tour bus. He was 25. Metallica bassist Cliff Burton was killed in a bus crash in Sweden in 1986 when the band's driver hit a patch of black ice and the bus crashed. In the accident, Burton was thrown from a window and the bus rolled over him, ending his life. He was 24. And nearly every metal fan born after 1980 remembers exactly where he or she was when the legendary Pantera guitarist Dimebag Darrell was gunned down on stage during a show in Columbus, Ohio. He was 38. There are tons of details regarding each of these incidents of mayhem, but the takeaway from every one of them is that life is precious, and sometimes it ends, or almost ends, without warning, in the most horrible ways. Which brings us back to Baroness and the nightmare bus ride in England that started the episode. When we last left Baisley, the bus had crashed through a barrier and was sailing above the treetops. The guitarist was sure he was going to die, 
Fortunately, he didn't. But he went through absolute agony and touch-and-go moments before he clawed his way back and resumed his life as a musician and a painter. We're flying over trees, and this is the last moment of my life. So I looked at our driver. He looked at me. I said goodbye to him. I looked to the back of the bus. We were all, everybody who was aware was acknowledging in their own way and going through their own version of this is it. You know, let's see what, let's, let's see what happens. I guess, I guess it's been a good run up until now. I hope this is quick, you know, and that's really not, you know, that's, that's a source of huge discomfort for me to, to have gone through that, man, I hope this is quick. And, yeah. and I know it's over and I'm totally fine with it. You know, like, no, I'm not scared. I just don't want to suffer. I just want this to be like the end and lights out. It wasn't to be. In an incident that defies logic, the Baroness bus, which was airborne and headed downwards, crashed in a way that somehow spared the lives of everyone on board. So we're flying over these trees, and there's a, this. They, in, in England, they call it a viaduct. Uh, it's like a little. It was like a little stream with a road on either. I think there was a road on either side. Right. Uh, and then a bridge off to the right. Uh, but basically, we had hit. We had managed to stick our bus directly over these spruce trees, which didn't, which, which weren't off to the left, the immediate left, and weren't off to the immediate right. Those spruce trees, in fact, say, I believe saved all of our lives. And the, the precise angle that we hit, we hit saved our lives. So we go over the top of these trees, across this little river, and the front of the bus, uh, well, thankfully, this is 1983 Mercedes bus, the bottom of the, the, it's the, bottom of the chassis is so heavy and so dense that there wasn't any rolling side to side. You know, there was no lateral twisting or, or bending. We basically just went straight off and straight down. Uh, but the nose of the bus went down first because, of, you know, for whatever reason. And when the nose hit the ground, I had this moment where I thought to myself, I'm still, alive. you know, at this point, I'm still alive. I remember hearing all these people say that drunks in car accidents tend to have a higher survival rate because they're because they're drunk and they're not aware of what's going on and their bodies are loose. So as much as I could, I tried to loosen up my body. I tried to relax. It's unlikely that Baisley's conscious decision to loosen his body had anything to do with his survival. That was more a case of luck and sheer willpower. We hit and I went like a fucking bullet. Uh, right up to the wind, windshield. I hit the windshield so hard that the entire front windshield of a full-size bus well, it cracked. And I remember seeing like all the little cracks kind of like spreading out from the side of my face because my head hit first. The whole windshield of the bus popped out clean, almost cleanly. I mean, it was, it was like, you know, it's like double pane glass. So it's got all the cracks and everything, but it popped out. And I popped out with it because I was going that fast. However, because of all the physics, I'm, ba- I'm also bouncing back from it. So when I landed, if you can call it that, uh, I was back in the bus, outside of the bus for a moment, then back inside the bus, looking at the windshield, which is 10 or 15 feet in front, uh, surveyed my body, immediately saw that left leg was bent in a very unnatural direction, so that's broken, right leg seemed to be okay, looked at my right arm, it was you know mostly blood and glass, but 
fingers were moving, everything, you know, if I was doing the, you know, arm straight out gesture and it was there, left arm straight out gesture, but it wasn't there. Uh, and I looked down and I saw, you know, the thing that, that haunts me and the, the, one, the one image that is easily my least favorite from the whole experience, which is the fact that about halfway down between my shoulder and my elbow, my arm was completely broken in half. And my left hand, you just picture this, if you can do the gesture, it'll, it'll illustrate a little bit better. My left hand, which should have been directly in front of my, directly in front of me, pointed straight, was on, was bent 180 degrees backwards behind my back and my left hand was almost in my right pocket from behind. And I could feel like, a, like you know, when you really bend a water, like a water hose and, and like the blood or the, the water stops, I could feel that with my artery. So I, you know, just with my right fist, I just kind of whacked the hand. It snapped, broke again, but now it was on the left side of my body. When accident victims or people in seemingly fatal positions seem to be approaching the end, they're sometimes capable of immense feats of strength, both physical and mental, that would be otherwise unimaginable. As Baisley lay bleeding in the crashed, crushed bus, he had no idea that help was on the way. Yet he put himself through even more agony in a desperate effort to stay alive. He grabbed my hand, had no feeling whatsoever. It was like, it was like grabbing a cold stranger's hand. I broke it two more times pulled it in on my chest and that's where I and I had my hand on my elbow pulling it into my rib cage for the next four hours I wouldn't let go um, it was fucking intense and you know for a split second I was positive I was dead and I had I had you know what, what most people would consider or term you know a, a near-death experience I, I, I saw something or, I, or rather I saw I saw the nothingness that, it, that I now believe exists beyond uh, beyond death, and when I was conscious and in the moment again, uh, I was in tremendous pain, but also overcome with this really bizarre kind of absurd joy uh, at the fact that I was all of a sudden feeling pain, and uh, I could smell diesel fuel and gas and blood and all. And those were those really weird smells that metal makes when it bends and and rents in two. And, uh, and it's just as, you know, if you're ever in a car crash, you know the car crash smells. It was like that right. mixed with all the food from our bus and the, and the fuel and all this stuff. It was really, really potent moment with, and, and God, there is no fucking amount of adrenaline that overrides that pain. And so I was just miserable. Having survived the most grueling part of the ordeal, Baisley was in excruciating agony, but he felt hope, and it soon became clear that people were coming to help him. You know, very quickly there was a, there was a group of people, local people on the site who were helping us out. The, you know, a lot of the guys, a lot of the band members or, or crew members who were weren't as injured as some of us were helping get the other guys off the bus. It was like a, you know this really massive group effort to get everybody off and safe, and, and that happened in a really nice way and we ended up at the hospital and they fixed me up and the fixes they made weren't exactly you know I don't exactly love the new reality of uh, of you know the state of my uh, left arm but it was it took three days to figure out how not to amputate it so I still got it and that's better than not having it sure god do you think by holding it 
in tight to your uh, to your body, you stop yourself from bleeding to death? I don't. I don't know. I honestly don't know. I was doing. I was. I was holding it so tightly because, you know, if you can ima- like imagine the way that a pencil snaps, it's not like a clean. It's not like a clean shearing. Right. It's like a bunch of jagged things. So if you snap a pencil in half and try to jam the two pieces together, you've got all these little fibers and bits, points of contact. That, well, that's what that's what it felt like. So every time I felt one little like uh, jagged outcropping of bone scrape against another, it was but disgusting and nauseating and, and I, it, it makes me shiver to think about that feeling but that's you know that's how fragile we are we break yeah. you bend us we break and that's just the simple fact of the matter is we break who knows how or why we survive because it seems miraculous and the net result was that I'm completely in unable to do so many things now with that with with this arm however this those very those those few things that i require to be you know be happy and productive and create things and do what i you know the things i'm naturally inclined to do those all those facilities were left with me and i'm surprised but it's you know it's it's really been it's it's really great you know there's there's so many bad sides to the story but there's also you know, so many wonderful little coincidences that, you know, if you have to go through something, you could, you know, it could have been a whole lot worse. And by all accounts, it should have been. Backstage, The Devil in Metal is a production of Diversion Podcasts in association with iHeartRadio and is available on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. This season is written and hosted by me, John Wiederhorn, produced and directed by Mark Francis and Scott Waxman. Our consulting producer is Andrew Cal. Production assistance from Anita Okoye, and our social media consultant is Stephen Tompkins. Clem Fandango is our technical producer, and our director of marketing and business development is Jacob Bronstein. Executive producers Scott Waxman and Mark Francis. Special thanks to Oren Rosenbaum at UTA. Thanks for listening to Backstage, The Devil in Metal. If you enjoyed the show, be sure to check out my book, Raising Hell, Backstage Tales from the Lives of Metal Legends, on Diversion Books. To purchase John's book, please go to Amazon.com or Bookshop.org. Podcasts.